And this week we're going to be taking a break from our current message series on the book of Daniel to take a look at Jesus the man. It's Easter Sunday, the day on which we celebrate the most important event in all of Christendom, Jesus' rising from the dead. And for me, it's always a, a contemplative weekend. I was reflecting on Jesus' death and resurrection, and it never ceases to strike me how radically different Christianity is from every other belief system in the world. When we talk about the question, what is God like? If you were to ask someone, what is God like? If there is a God, what is he like? Logical answer would include things like, he's powerful. He is beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination. He's, he's all-knowing. But if Jesus had never come to the earth and never revealed who God is, nobody would answer the question, what is God like with a servant? Nobody would come up with the idea, he's a servant. We wouldn't even think that. And yet Jesus was the king of kings who lowered himself to take on the form of his own creation, man, coming to the earth he created to endure a lifetime of difficulties, abuse, and temptations, and then suffering and dying for your sins and mine. See, what do you call a God like that? You call him a servant. More than that, he's a servant to you. He's a servant to me. And you might say, what? That's blasphemous. He's sovereign. He's, he's righteous. He's holy. He's seated on the throne of heaven. Yes, 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 and yes. But what do you call a God who lived the life Jesus lived, ministered the way Jesus ministered, and died the way Jesus died. What do you call the one who summed up his entire earthly mission this way, in his own words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What do you call that same one who also said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the only reason he's able to offer that rest is because he did all the labor, all the work for us. He lived the sinless life. He obeyed and fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He did all the work because he's a servant and he wanted to offer us rest. What do you call one who labors so that you can have rest? He's a servant. What do you call the one who comes at your beck and call? even when it's the middle of the night, even when you've ignored him for years, even when you've disobeyed him and neglected his commands over and over and over again, and yet he comes. What do you call that one? God is a servant. What do you call the one who doesn't hold your failures against you, yet instead says he will work in your mess and on your mess to do something good in the midst of your mess? What do you call the one who works to clean up your mess rather than condemning you for it? God is a servant. What do you call the one who would wash the feet of the one he knew was going to betray him to his enemies just hours later? What do you call a God who would rather die for what you are guilty of than let you die for it yourself? God is a servant. According to 1 John 4, 8, God is love and so apparently what love looks like in human form is the man or woman who takes the position of a servant and serves those the Lord places in their life. God is love, and you can write this down, it's your first fill-in. God is love, and love in human form looks like a servant. It looks like a servant. The longer I live, the more convinced I become that the greatest evidence for Jesus and the gospel being true is the gospel itself. It's a message and truth that couldn't be dreamed up by the imagination of any man or woman because we simply don't think this way. We don't think like this. We don't come up with gods who come to serve. We don't come up with 
gods who come to lay down their lives for their own creation that has rejected them. We don't think that way about gods and kings. The message of the gospel is too wonderful, it's too different, it's too radical to be fabricated. No human mind could come up with it. And so today we're gonna spend some time studying, meditating on, just soaking in the subject of Jesus the servant because there's simply no one like Jesus. There's no one like him. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we'll read together beginning in verse one. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. So when the time had come that Jesus knew his crucifixion was near, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That literally just means he loved them completely. He loved those who were his, his disciples completely. So let me set the scene for you here with a little bit more detail. In John chapters 13 through 16, we find Jesus in the upper room eating his final meal before he will be arrested and then crucified. It's what's known as the Last Supper. It's that famous painting of Jesus and the disciples all sitting at that table. The meal he would eat the night before he would be crucified. And at a dinner like this, it was customary for the the lowest servant available to wash the feet of the guests. Because as we've talked about before, when you're in the Middle East, around this time in history, everybody's rocking Birkenstocks. Everybody's wearing them. No socks, just straight Birkenstocks. Birkenstocks. And so they would be walking, and this is a culture where when the toilet was full, you simply dumped it onto the street. That's what you did. You've also got modes of transportation that poop back then, like camels and donkeys and things like that. And everyone's sharing the same road. So when a group of people show up, and want to put their feet up and relax. It's not a pretty thing. So it was customary if you were hosting a dinner, you're going to get the lowest ranking servant and he gets the job of washing everybody's feet. But this meal, the Last Supper, wasn't actually being hosted by anybody. They had simply acquired use of this upper room to eat this Passover meal. There was no host putting on the meal. The disciples prepared the food and they just sort of did it as a team effort. But... Now we come to this scene where they're all around the table. The feet stink. Everyone can smell it. But nobody wants to be the foot washer. Because if you decide that you're going to wash everyone's feet, that's making a declaration that you are the least important person there at that meal. And so they're just stuck in this standoff. They're all like looking at each other. No one wants to even comment about the stink because they know someone's gonna be like, well, why don't you do something about it and wash the feet? So, so it stinks to high heaven, but nobody wants to say a word about it. In fact, the Bible says what the disciples do instead, because they're so on edge about this importance idea, they get into an argument about which of them is the most important. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They start arguing about that. Have you ever been in a standoff situation. I don't know how it is for you, but in my house, if there's a standoff that happens, it's happening around the kitchen garbage can. And that thing starts getting full. We start doing wrestling moves on that kitchen garbage can. I mean, we're gonna do a stomp, we might do an elbow drop, we might grab a chair and beat the trash down so that we can get our trash in there so that we don't have to be the one who empties the trash and puts the new bag in. I might grab a kid and tell him to jump up and down on top of it. But my garbage is getting in there. I am not going to be the one who has to take the garbage out. And so if we have a standoff, this is what it's going to be about. It's going to be about the garbage can. And it gets near the end there and it gets to the point where you're nervous when you just open it because that thing could just explode in your face. And so you open it and slide it in and still good, still good. The lid still sits flat and you're good. This was a standoff situation. And in this situation, if I were Jesus, knowing that my death was imminent, I mean, can you imagine Jesus is gonna die for the world and his disciples are basically saying, you know, washing each other's feet, that's (laughs) that's asking a little bit much, don't you think? And if I were Jesus, this would have been a moment where I would have looked around the room and thought to myself, I'm surrounded by idiots. I'm surrounded by idiots. But he doesn't. 
In fact, what we read is that, is that Jesus looked at them and he loved them, it says. He loved them. Why? Well, I can only assume it's for the same reason that he loves you and I. I don't know what that reason is, but I assume it's the same reason that he loves you and I. He loves them. To me, the greatest mystery of the gospel of salvation is simply this, that God loves us. That, that's the mystery. He loves us. I know he loves us because he made us, and so, so he's invested the way an artist is invested in their greatest work. I, I know he loves us because he bought us for the highest price of all, the life of his son, Jesus. He's invested in us the way a person would be invested in something they gave up their greatest treasure to acquire. But why he would choose to do those things, why he would choose to buy us with the life of his son, why he would choose to create us, well, that's a glorious mystery. It's an incredible thing that God loves us. And he looked at his disciples and he looked at you and I and he, and he, and he loved them and he loves us. Then in verse two it says, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but you'll know after this. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus chooses to share this meal with his disciples and then he proceeds to teach them about the defining characteristic of his followers. The one character trait that needs to be present in every believer, love. Hours before his death, Jesus doesn't try and pump up his disciples to be more zealous, be more committed, more dedicated. He tells them you need to learn how to love. And then by his own actions, he shows them this is what love looks like. And taking the posture of a servant, he washed their feet. Hours later, he would do the same thing, but with infinitely higher stakes. Hours later, he would make his disciples clean, not on the outside, not with water, but clean in their spirits, the deepest parts of them, and he would do it with his blood on the cross. Look at verse 17 again. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. King James translates it as happy are you if you do them. What an important word this is for those of us who love the word of God. Jesus says there's a blessing here. There's a joy that comes from living as a servant. Not knowing it intellectually, but, but doing it practically. When the scientific community says it has discovered that people find fulfillment in serving others, they're simply tapping into an aspect of the truth that Jesus taught 2,000 years ago. We were created by God to be his representatives on the earth. And because he's a servant, that means we were made, we were engineered, we were created to be like him and find fulfillment in taking the role of a servant. 
If you desire to be truly blessed and truly joyful, Jesus would say what you're looking for is found in taking the place of a servant and viewing yourself as a servant. So let's look together at some principles that will help us live this out. How do we actually do this? So so fill this in. Our position in Jesus frees us to love, and we'll talk about this some more. Our position in Jesus frees us to love. If you're still struggling with mistakes you made last week or last month or last year, you will not be free to love. If you're still working through your past, living in your past, haunted by your past, you will not be able to love in the present because the more you try to love someone, the more Satan will whisper in your ear, you're such a hypocrite. You're such a hypocrite. What are you doing pretending you're going to be the love of Jesus to somebody? We both know what you've done. We both know what's in your past. We're told in Revelation 12 that Satan is the accuser. And how does he accuse us? By constantly replaying our past failures and sins to the point where we feel unqualified to do anything other than wallow in defeat. But the good news is that if you're a believer, the blood of Jesus has washed away all your failures and all your sins. Every sin you've ever committed is not only forgiven, the Bible says God has forgotten them. I am absolutely at peace with my past. Not not because I'm perfect, not by a long shot, but because I know what my position is in Jesus. I know he's forgiven me. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that my past sins are covered, paid for, and taken care of by Jesus. Satan says, you? You're going to love people? Where are you coming from with that, you hypocrite? But we're able to say, hey, I'm coming from the place of being forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That's where I'm coming from. I'm not a hypocrite because I'm not claiming to be perfect. I'm owning every single sin I've ever committed. I'm not a hypocrite. I did it. I'm just saying I'm forgiven. That's where I'm coming from. There's no hypocrisy here. In verse three, we read that Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going to God. So you see, he knew where he came from. His past was covered, that base was covered. And Jesus also knew where he was going. His future was covered too. He was going back to the Father. If you're always concerned about your finances or if the relationship is going to survive, or if they may or may not fully appreciate everything you do for them. If you're living in the future, you're gonna miss the opportunity to love in the present. If Satan can't get you with guilt or shame about your past, he will try to cripple you with anxiety and fear about your future. You'll have so much worry that you'll you'll get to the point where you can't love anybody well in the present because you'll be saying, I've got too many of my own problems. I don't have the emotional energy to love anybody because I'm so overwhelmed by what could go wrong in the future. Jesus knew where he was going. And we know where we're going. We're going to Jesus. And not only eternally, but here on earth, Jesus has taken care of our future. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things, everything you need in life will be added to you. If you just seek Jesus and his kingdom first, he'll take care of everything else. And he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's never going to leave us alone. Jesus has covered the sins of my past and Jesus has secured my future on earth and in heaven. And if I can embrace and live in that reality then I'm released and I'm free to love in the present. The Apostle Paul said, and now abide or now remain three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And he said that because it takes faith to believe that your past is covered by Jesus. And it takes hope to believe that the future is secure through Jesus to allow us to love in the present. Even as the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, even as Judas is looking for the moment to betray him, even in the heaviest of hours, we see in Jesus freedom to love. He's completely in the moment with the people God has given him to love. 
He's not thinking too far ahead. He's not looking back. He's just in the moment loving them. Next we see this. You can write this down. Love gets involved. Love gets involved. They're at the dinner table and Jesus becomes aware that his disciples need their feet washed and none of them are moving to do it. And in choosing to wash their feet, Jesus' meal was interrupted. And so too, if we're going to be those who love others, who love as Jesus the servant loved, we need to know that we can count on interruptions in our lives. We can count on interruptions. There you'll be, in front of the TV, bag of popcorn, legs up on the table, kids finally asleep, it's all coming together. Ding! Facebook message, text message, WhatsApp. Hey man, I'm having a really hard time. Hey, are you free to talk for a little bit about something important? That's going to happen. And if you're going to be one who loves, you got to count on interruptions. They're going to happen. Not only interruptions, but also involvement. You see, Jesus didn't stand up and say, I smelleth something funky. I will now teach you guys about the importance of washing your feet before you eat. Peter, you idiot, don't you see that your foot is covered in camel dung? James, the stink of your feet has risen to the heavens. Now Jesus doesn't give a lecture on dirty feet. He simply gets down on his hands and knees and he starts washing them. And if we're not willing to, to wash feet, to get involved in people's lives, even when it's messy, then we probably need to keep our mouths closed when we see dirt. You know, I find it far easier to identify and point out dirt than I do to help people wash it off. I mean, I can see the dirt from so much further away than I can actually help wash it off. I can see it from miles away. I got a speck on your ankle. I can see it from here. You should do something about that. Can you help me? Uh, no, I just want to let you know it's there. But that's what love does. It doesn't just point out the issue. It says, hey, hey, your feet stink. And it's because they're covered in doo-doo. Can I help? Is there anything I can do to help with that? Because we need to get you clean. In fact, when Jesus told his disciples he would send them the Holy Spirit, he gave the Holy Spirit a name. He called him the Helper. The helper. The Lord gave us the Holy Spirit to help us navigate the journey of following Jesus. And I think we struggle with this because the internet seems to be a tool developed for the sole purpose of pointing out dirt on other people without any risk of having to actually get involved in their life. And Jesus didn't simply point out the dirt on the feet of his disciples. He, he did something about it. Love gets involved. And love is okay being interrupted. Next, you can make a note of this. Love is spirit-led. It's spirit-led. This is so, so, so important. Jesus wants to wash Peter's feet, but what happens? Peter protests and he says, you're not going to wash any part of me. The problem with that was independence. Peter was saying, I'm going to decide what happens here. I'll decide what's appropriate and inappropriate. I'll decide if my feet need washing. But when Jesus corrected him, Peter said, well, okay, then wash all of me. Now the problem was over-dependence. Peter was saying, I'll take everything you have. Some people are too independent. They won't let you love them. They're not interested in having a conversation about stinky feet. No, no, I'll be the one who decides if my feet are stinky or not. I think my feet are just fine. Thank you very much. Little crusty maybe, but, but, but I like them independence but some people will say you know you're right my feet are dirty but unless you're willing to serve me anytime I need you to day or night exactly the way I think you should then you're a bad Christian who doesn't really love me and you're a hypocrite some people will bleed you dry they'll demand and they'll manipulate and that's why sometimes the loving thing to do is to say hey I love you I'm here to help, but I'm not God. I'm not the Lord in your life. I can't be the solution to your problem. I can help you. I can wash your feet, but, but you don't need a bath. So what's the solution? How, how do you avoid being taken advantage of? How do you know how much to help? 
It's real simple. It's being led by the Spirit. It's asking the Lord, what do you want me to do here, Lord? What do you want me to do here, Lord? Because we're not trying to please people. The goal is not to get a five-star review from those we help, you know? We're not running some sort of Christian Yelp service thing. Our goal is to bless the Lord by doing what He wants us to do. You know, Jesus' whole ministry on the earth, He's led by the Holy Spirit. You know when He goes and heals people? When the Holy Spirit says, go and heal people. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit would also sometimes tell Jesus that's enough before everybody had been healed? When there were still people that wanted to talk to Jesus and the Holy Spirit would say, that's enough. You need to, you need to go somewhere and you need to pray. You get, need to get alone. You need to recharge. And I really believe that's because the Holy Spirit knew, hey, Jesus, if you just keep going till you can't go anymore, you're going to have a breakdown. You're going to be so exhausted. The temptation of sin is going to become overwhelming because you're going to have no strength left to fight. And so when the Holy Spirit said, that's enough, Jesus said, okay, that's enough. There were still needs. And we need to understand that there's always, always going to be needs. Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. You know, we're never going to solve global poverty till Jesus comes back. It's not going to happen. So what do you do? You help where the Holy Spirit tells you to help. You help the one the Holy Spirit leads you to, and you help them as much as the Holy Spirit leads you to. Sometimes it will be a lot more than you really want to. And sometimes it may be less than you want to. But it's remembering that we are not God. We're servants of God. And so we've got to regularly stop and say, okay, Master, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve in this situation? Love is spirit led. It's wisdom to learn to say to people, I'm going to help you as the Lord leads me to help you, and I'm going to respond to his leading, but I'm not going to respond to your demanding. Be led by the Lord in that. Then make a note of this too. Love is defined by God's word. Love is defined by God's word. It sure seems like the whole world believes in love. And if you were to ask most people, they'd say, oh, absolutely, I believe in love. And yet things start varying wildly as soon as we have to define what love is. Love is easy when you're the one who defines it, when you're the one who sets its borders and its limits. Love is not easy when we allow the God who's the very definition of love to define it. And he does define it in his word. You know this, 1 Corinthians 13 the Apostle Paul says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes through all things, and hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Now that's a high standard. But part of following Jesus is agreeing that he's the one who sets the standard of what love is, not us. And God's word has a lot to say about what love looks like as we take the place of a servant. God's word has a lot to say about how we're to serve our spouses, our parents, our children, our employees, our friends, and even our enemies. And if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be a servant, we need to begin looking at the relationships in our lives and say, how has God called me to love and serve my spouse? I don't get to define what that is. What does God say love is in a marriage? What does God say love is between a child and a parent? What does God say love is between friends, between an employee and a boss? What does it look like? God's word has a lot to say. And the catastrophe of the modern church is believers who look to the culture around them to tell them what love is. And so we see some believers freaking out, saying, oh no, what are we gonna do anytime someone in the culture says, you're not being loving? What that person in the culture is really saying is, according to my definition, you're not being loving. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap when someone accuses us of not being loving. But we have to remember, we're not trying to meet their standard of love. We're trying to live up and meet God's standard of love. 
We want God to say, yes, you are loving well in that situation, even if they say, you're not loving me well. We're not looking for their approval. We're looking for God's approval. I would be a terrible parent if I only did what my kids judged to be loving. I just caught you stealing from your mom's purse. We need to bring some discipline into this situation. I don't think that'd be real loving, Dad. Okay, don't worry about it. It's fine. That's what we do when we lose sight of the fact that God defines what love is, and he does it through his word. He is the one who sets the standards for us. When Jesus was praying alone on the Mount of Olives on the night he would be arrested, as he contemplated what love would cost him as a servant, he talked with his Father in heaven about what his Father was asking him to do. I think I put this on your outlines, and it says in Luke 22, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. He's speaking about the cup metaphorically of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on him on the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, he was able to embody what love is because he was so connected to his Father in heaven. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would go places, talk to people, teach, heal the sick, as the Holy Spirit led him to moment by moment. And Jesus' most difficult hour that we just read about right there was the result of the Father telling him, this is what love is right now, in this moment. Right now, love is suffering and dying on the cross. And even when Jesus was facing that, he submitted himself to his Father's definition of love and laid down his life for us. Jesus didn't redefine love in that moment so that he could avoid the cross. He allowed the Father and the Holy Spirit to define love in his life. That's what it looks like to be a servant. We keep letting God define love even when it gets difficult. Even when it gets difficult. Now make a note of this. A servant doesn't need an audience. A servant doesn't need an audience. Jesus' act was unannounced in the upper room. He didn't stand up and say, disciples, you will now see love in action. Watch me. Take notes. I'll allow a few photos. Please use the hashtag ultimate servant when posting this to social media. He just got up and washed feet. It wasn't something he announced. It wasn't something all of Jerusalem could see. He didn't post to Facebook, glad to be serving my disciples this Passover evening, you know, with a towel in his hand. Which I could do a whole rant about, by the way, of modern day Christians forgetting that our good deeds are supposed to be in private. He just quietly took care of the situation. And I love that because Jesus shows us what true spirituality looks like. He says to our world, oh, oh, you want to have a right self-image? You want to see yourself the right way? You want to be full of self-esteem? You want to view yourself in your highest potential? Stand in front of the mirror and do a visualization exercise of yourself at your fulfilled potential? Imagine yourself as a servant. That's what Jesus says. Oh, you want to become more divine? Become more in touch with that? Wash the dishes. Do the laundry, mow the lawn, change a diaper, work hard for your boss who's never going to notice or appreciate you. Oh, you want to connect more deeply with the, with the God nature inside of yourself? Show kindness to people who are never going to respond to you the same way. Serve people even when there's no potential they're going to pay you back. You want to ascend to a higher plane of spiritual enlightenment? Do the stuff nobody else wants to do when nobody else is watching. And don't tweet about it. That's true spirituality. That's true spirituality. A friend of mine on Facebook just posted an article. She's into all kinds of new age stuff. And she posted this article that ran in, I think, the Telegraph from London this week about this female British banker 
who's prosperous but walked away from her affluent lifestyle to move to Tibet and live in a monastery in the mountains as a Buddhist nun. And you know what? That's easy. That's not spiritual. That's easy. Dropping out, running away from your life, all your commitments, all the difficult people in your life that you're supposed to serve and love, that's easy. That's called quitting. That's not ascending to a higher plane of anything. You know what's difficult? You know what's truly spiritual? Staying where you are and doing a great job serving the people God has put in your life right now. That's transcendent spirituality. That's what love really looks like. And here again we see the upside down nature of the kingdom of God because this all means that the most spiritual people on earth are not the ones with the most social media followers, the biggest audience, the most important positions. The most spiritual people on the planet today are simply quietly serving every day without fanfare, recognition, or an audience, the people that God has called them to serve. And we have no idea who they are, I guarantee you. And we'll probably never know their names until we reach heaven, but they're the most spiritual people on the earth right now. God is love and love looks like a servant and we're called to be like God, we're called to be servants. Write this down, love serves regardless of flaws and failures. Love serves regardless of flaws and failures. Well, it was easy for Jesus to serve the disciples. Those guys are all legends. They all grew up to be the fathers of the early church and write important books and things. And I mean, if I had to serve people that had that sort of destiny, it it wouldn't be hard. You, You don't know the people in my life None of them are going to pastor the Jerusalem church. None of them are going to do anything like that. And they're, they're just difficult all the time. Have you ever been around a guy who literally likes to start fights about politics, but likes it so much that he carries a sword with him just in case things escalate? That was Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples. How about someone who's so shy? You know that person who anytime you're having a good time, He's just dragging down the energy. Everyone's laughing hysterically and he's like, (laughs) that guy? There's one of those in the 12 disciples too. James, you know what James' historical name is? He goes down in history as James the Less. That's his name. James the Less. How about someone who's skeptical of everything you said? I'll rise from the dead in three days. I'm the son of God. That was Nathaniel. How about a friend so great, they tell everyone they're your best friend, and then at the moment in your life when you need them the most, they deny three times even knowing you. That was Peter. How about one who'd stab you in the back and betray you to your enemies? That was Judas. Jesus' posse had issues, just like the people in your life and my life have issues. Yet Jesus, in a beautiful and humble way, loved these guys who were not very lovable. And this gives me great hope, because I'm not very lovable either. And it gives me great comfort to realize that the Lord doesn't love me because I'm lovable. He loves me because he is love. That's who he is. I'm not even part of the equation as to whether or not he loves me. It's got nothing to do with me. He loves me because he is love. It's who he is. Where we would say, Lord, they're too difficult to love. Jesus would say, well, I loved you, didn't I? I loved you. He's the model for us. At any given point in our lives, we live by basin theology. That is, we either call for the basin, like Pontius Pilate did, and like he did, wash our hands of everything we know to be true about serving people. We just say, I'm done with this, I'm done with this. Not them, not anymore. I'll wash my hands of the whole situation. Or we take up the basin and we wash someone's feet by serving them in humility and love. We'll either wash our hands of the situation or we'll get down and wash feet. 
at the very time Jesus was going through something of an intensity that we'll never understand this side of eternity. He didn't wash his hands of the situation. He didn't wash his hands of those who would deny and betray him, those who were arguing about who was greatest. He washed their feet. And you might say, Jeff, I understand that Jesus came to earth as a servant, but that's not who he is now. He's fully glorified now. He's over all things, on the throne in heaven. The servant stuff is done with. Not true. When Jesus came to the earth, his character was as it has always been. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus told his disciples when he was on the earth, if they had seen him, they'd seen the Father. In other words, by looking at who Jesus was on earth, his character, the disciples and us can know exactly what the character of our Father in heaven is like. Jesus' character was the same as it's always been. But how do I know Jesus is still a servant? Well, in Hebrews 7.25, it's on your outlines, it says this about Jesus. He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since this is what he's doing right now, he always lives to make intercession for them. What that means is that Jesus is praying for believers on the earth right now, for you and I. He's praying for us in heaven. He's not kicking back saying, man, I'm so glad that servant business is over. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He's serving you right now. And while Jesus is doing that, the Holy Spirit, the helper, is ministering to us on the earth right now. And then get this. This this is one of the craziest verses in the Bible. Jesus himself told his disciples this in Luke 12. He said, blessed are those servants whom the master, Jesus is speaking about himself, when he comes, will find watching. So blessed are those who long for Jesus and live with their eyes on Jesus. Why are they blessed? Jesus says this, assuredly I say to you that he, Jesus, will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. It's scandalous, it's scandalous, it's incredible. It's unbelievable to me. God is love and love looks like a servant and even in eternity, Jesus is a servant, that's, that's who he is. It's not something he does. It's part of who he is at his core. Love is a servant. You know, Jesus wasn't joking when he told Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. If we wanna have a relationship with Jesus, we have to let him serve us. We have to let him wash us, we need him to. The problem for many of us is that we don't want to admit that we need someone to serve us. We don't want to admit we need our feet washed. That means admitting we're not clean. But that's where a relationship with Jesus begins. It begins when the Holy Spirit, who's already serving you by the way, opens up the eyes of our heart and we suddenly see clearly and we understand in a way we can't put into words, we understand that we're broken inside, we're messed up, we're unclean on a level that we can't fix on our own. And when we suddenly realize that, that's also when we realize what good news it is that 2,000 years ago Jesus made a way for us to become whole and clean. So we ask Jesus to send his spirit into our lives to serve us by healing us, by forgiving us. And then we begin following him and walking in his footsteps by doing our best to live as servants as well. But it all begins by humbly admitting that we need Jesus to serve us. We need him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And he does, and he will, because that's who God is. If you're here today and and you know you haven't been walking with the Lord, you haven't been following him and laying down your life the way he's called you to, I want to encourage you to take communion today and confess your sins to God. Just between you and him, there will be communion available in the back in the time of worship we're gonna have after the message. Go take it, sit down, pray, talk to God, confess your sin to him. First John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And we need that cleansing every day, every single day. Just as people who would walk on streets in the Middle East at that time in history needed their feet washed every day, we need to be made clean on a daily basis. Because while our spirits have been made new by Jesus, we're still trapped in these broken, sinful bodies for now. We might have renewed spirits, but we're still walking in a world where there's junk all around us. And so we need regular cleansing. We don't need to be saved again. We don't need a full bath, but we do need cleansing and healing. We need our stinky feet washed. And so whoever you are, wherever you're at, because Jesus served you on the cross, you can walk out of here today with the peace of God, the hope of God, the joy of God, if you'll give your life over to him, if you'll do that. If you've never done that, I want to give you a chance to do that in just a minute. And if you've given your life to God, but you haven't been walking and living as a servant, here's what I know. I know that you're not happy. I know you're not happy. Because you were engineered by God to be most fulfilled serving the people he's put in your life. And so if you're here and you know, man, I just haven't been fulfilled. I just haven't been happy. I haven't been viewing myself as a servant. I've been buying into talk like what I deserve. I've been thinking about what I deserve and how I never get what I deserve and nobody says thank you enough and nobody notices all that I do. If that's where you're at, man, just resolve within yourself, I'm gonna live as a servant. I'm gonna live as a servant. And if nobody notices, God notices. That's all I really care about anyway. I want to be like Jesus. Make that determination today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we look at the life of your son, Jesus. And we see the most perfect servant who ever lived. Lord, the one who should never have to be a servant in our thinking became the servant of all at the cost of his life and his body and his blood on the cross. And that wasn't a role you were filling for just a moment, Jesus. That's who you are. You are love and love means being a servant. And at that same Last Supper, you told your disciples it was your joy to serve them with your life. And so, Father, we want to pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, who we know is serving us right now, by ministering to our hearts. We want to ask that you would reset our thinking. That you would fix our eyes on you. That we would view laying down our lives, serving you and serving those you've put in our lives as something we aspire to, something we ascend to. Because the better we get at doing it, the more like you we become and the closer to you we come. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to have that mark of love that is not common in our world today. We want our, our spouses to be able to call us a servant because that's how we live. We want our kids to be able to call us a servant because they see that in the way we live. We want our friends and our co-workers and our peers and our fellow students to see in us the heart of a servant, something that just doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Help us to bear your mark of love by serving each other well, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to, to minister to us to work the change in us that needs to be worked, whatever it is, to reset our thinking and to say we're glad to be called servants just as our Lord and Savior Jesus was. Help us to not wait for somebody else to pick up the towel. Help us to just view it as an opportunity to be like you, a divine appointment. And Jesus, on this Easter Sunday, we do just marvel at the cup that you picked up and the cup that you drank for us. All the wrath of the Father for all the sins that we've committed. 
There is truly, there's no limit to how you love God. It is extraordinary. And Lord, we thank you for the mystery of the gospel, the mystery that you love us. You love us. And Lord, we'll never get over that. We'll never be able to wrap our heads around that. We're thankful for it. But Lord, it's too amazing. It's too glorious. It's too good. And we are so thankful for it. We're so thankful for you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us with your life on the cross. And thank you that the grave could not hold you. And you are alive on the throne above all thrones with the name that is above all names. And that we will see you there very, very soon, Jesus. We love you and we long for you, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.